Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. Today we're talking about bats and batting. Later we'll come on to the bat itself and the strange piece of cosmic luck that makes Salix Alba, one of 400 or so cultivars of the willow tree, uniquely suited to the game of cricket and how the game itself has become dependent on this one type of wood. The symbiotic relationship between batsman and bat is perhaps not surprising. In a team game the batsman stands alone and the bat is all he has to hold on to. We'll investigate how its simple shape, unchanged for a hundred years, has become objectified, turned into epic pieces of wood that are designed, built and marketed to make you feel as though you can hit the bowler onto the stadium roof, or in the case of us club players, into the nearby pub car park at least. But before that, when W.G. Grace became the first man to make 50 first-class centuries, he was so far ahead of the rest that he had more hundreds than the next 13 players on the list added together. And when, at the age of 46 and in the May of 1895, he neared his 100th hundred, the man at the other end, Charles Townsend, said it was the only time I ever saw him flustered. So great was Grace's achievement and so magical that number of 100 hundreds that for a long time it was thought no one else would ever achieve the feat. In fact, it would take Tom Haywood almost two decades to become the second. Scoring 100 centuries became one of the great marks of batsmanship, achieved not over the course of a day or a season, but a lifetime. There are 25 players in that select club, and the final two, Graham Hick and Mark Ramprakash, also share a test debut. That came against West Indies in 1991 in a test at Headingley, famous for another of the game's great hundreds, Graham Gooch's second innings 154 not out, often listed as one of the greatest innings ever played. In the summer of 1990, Gooch had averaged more than 100 in the season, a feat matched by Mark Rampakash, who achieved it not once, but twice. Mark finished his playing career in 2008 with 114 centuries, the same number as one of his own heroes, Viv Richards, and has gone on to have great success as a coach. Who better than to help us explore the magical figure of 100? And I'm delighted to say that Mark joins us now. Mark, first of all, perhaps you could let the rest of us mortals in on it and let us know what's the secret to making a century? Well, well, um, you know, when you go out to bat, of course, it, it, it... It can seem so far away, um, and so um, you know. Uh, I guess it depends a little bit on the bowling attack and the pitch conditions, overhead conditions. You know, and that's the great thing about cricket is that there are so many variables. But um, I think most players will tell you that um, when you have a big task in front of you, the best thing is to break it down into small bits and. You know, there were times when I was um, relieved just to get off the mark um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and you sort of take it from there. But I think as I got um, later in my career uh, into my 30s, I think I got the balance right between being really focused but also relaxed yeah. enough to switch down my concentration in between deliveries or in between overs Um and, and sort of enjoy the process of, of batting and and trying to um, take on that challenge. So I think that, you know, um, it's it's a combination of those things. I think, you know, I used to speak a lot with Graham Gooch and, and he would talk about, um, you know, really uh, every day is a new day and you play yourself in and, uh, uh, you know, you, you sort of go through a process, especially as a top order player against a new ball where you have to earn the right. Yeah. 
um, against the moving ball, particularly in England, you earn the right, you back your defensive technique, and then hopefully as the ball gets older, you know, things get a bit easier. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, and obviously you you played cricket for a long time from a kind of a young Tiro and on into your 40s. I mean, you must have been a much different player at the end than the player that began. Um, do you? How do you reflect on that difference? Well, I think uh, as a 17-year-old making my first-class debut for Middlesex, you know, I was a lot more instinctive. Um, I I, uh, I didn't play with a helmet um, the first time. I, yeah, I mean, I know, I know that might seem strange to some listeners, but, um, you know, I, I never wore a helmet. And my, it was only in the second innings of my first-class debut against Yorkshire that I wore a helmet. Right. Um, and why did you put and, that on? Was that a particular bowler or you just realised well, that it was a step up? Well, it was a step up, and, and Yorkshire had a guy called Paul Jarvis uh, and Arnie Sidebottom, those two guys, and they could get the ball through. And the pitch at Lords was the, the sort of quickest pitch that I played on up until that period of time in my career. You know, it was so, so um, all of a sudden the ball was flying around my ears, and, and not that it hadn't. I mean, it always had, but I'd never thought anything about it. And I, as a result, you know, I played a lot more on the back foot, um, but. Um, I guess uh, the other professionals around me, hardened players like uh, Wolf Slack, who was a top opening batsman for Middlesex, Roland Butcher, um, they were all wearing helmets. And so um, I put one on, of course, at that time, it was just with the side pieces. So I, I, I didn't want anything you know, interfering with my vision. So it was just putting the helmet shell on like a cap with the side pieces. And, <laughs> yeah. and so I, and so I, um, and so I did that. Yeah. 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 And can you remember the, I mean, did you feel like you, when you first got a hundred, when you've made your first, first class hundred, did you feel like you'd kind of graduated in some way? It was a big moment because, um, I had played for Middlesex in, well, I was at college. Uh, so I played for them in the, in the summer holidays when I was 17 or 18. And then I had a, uh, a full-time contract uh, in 1989. And um, I, later on in the season, on a difficult wicket up at Headingley, I managed to get to 100. And it was a, it's a really big moment because I think for any professional sportsman, if you put in front um, that type of hurdle, um, it goes, if, if you can jump that hurdle, um, it can give you so much belief and confidence that you belong at that level. The longer you don't jump that hurdle, then it, you know, of course it's you know it's the opposite, and, and you start to you start to perhaps uh, lose confidence that you can play well at that level. So um, I was very lucky. I went into a fantastic Middlesex side with lots of senior players, and I learned so much of them. And um, and so uh, you know, luckily that that hundred came along in in my first full season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mentioned or alluded to earlier that fantastic period in 2006 2007 when it seemed like you almost couldn't stop scoring hundreds i mean it's a period of batting that very few people have ever got to experience can you sort of describe a little bit how you think it came about and and what you remember of it now yeah absolutely yeah i i got 1800s in two two seasons and um I felt when I look back and reflect, it's the culmination of many, many things. So I mentioned about the the balance between being focused but relaxed. Um, um, I, I think that you know I was uh, you know still uh, kept myself physically fit. Um, I think I was highly motivated, um, but I was motivated by a love of batting. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it was not sort of any rewards that came after that. It was purely the process, enjoying the process, uh, you know, difficult at the start of the innings, going through, trying to get the ball a bit older, batting time, then, you know, perhaps maybe accelerating against the spinners, um, you know, and, and the ebb and flow of the game. And, and of course, contributing to your team, uh, you know, is so important. So I think all, all of, and of course, I was very experienced at that time. I'd faced a lot of different conditions, played in a lot of different countries. So all these different factors came together, I think, just to kind of, uh, you know, in those two seasons. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a strange question, but can you re- remember individual innings in that run now? Or does it all kind of merge together because it just seems to go on and on? Um, yeah, they, they do merge. They do merge. I, I, you know, they, you know, yeah, they do. I, I, can, I can remember certain bits of, of certain innings, for yeah. example. Um, but, uh, you know, I... Um, yeah, I, I I can't talk you through uh, every ball, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you, that's an interesting point. Do you miss it? Do you kind of, in your quiet moments, lie there sometimes and think, oh, yeah, I can remember how that felt. I wish I could do it again. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, a fantastic feeling of, of satisfaction. I think any time you score 100 and your team goes on to win the game, that is the ultimate. That's very, very special. And it was always such a great feeling. Um, when that happened, uh, I think um, you you kind of, uh, as, I've, as I've said, you've got that intrinsic motivation um, to to sort of love what you're doing, yeah. and, I, and I I feel like um, the appreciation of your team teammates, you know, that's that's a very special feeling as well. When you walk off and you think, you know, you you've got done all that work because it takes a lot of concentration and of course it becomes physically tiring yeah and you do yeah. all that work and your teammates really appreciate it you know that's that's also uh, a fantastic thing how do you get into i mean uh, you know the kind of average club cricketer like a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners if we have sort of two or three good innings on the trot you know where you become convinced that the next one will be a failure because that's just the way the game goes how do you overcome that kind of hurdle and just keep scoring and scoring um, well, uh, you have, as I say, I think you have to have a love of the process, a love of batting. Um, and I, and I always, I mean, very early in my uh, life, really, my dad was my sort of my best coach really. And we used to play a lot in the back garden with a softball and where we, my first house, where we used to live, we had a long concrete driveway. So we bowled in there. So um, and and he would always say, you know, every day is a new day, and you have to you have to play yourself in, and um, you know that's kind of the, how how I um, viewed uh, first class cricket. Yeah. Um, and and although um, you know sometimes you 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 have a run of of matches where the pitches are difficult, and sometimes if you get forty, you've done you've done well. Um, but what that does, it hardens you up that when the pitches are in your favour, um, you do not give it away. And and that, that that concentration, you try and limit your errors. Um, that doesn't mean it inhibits you, and that you're not playing. You know, you've got to hit the ball when it's there to score. You must take that opportunity. But um, I think it just hardens you up. And I mean, Mike Gatting, my first captain, you know, he was very very big on the fact that you know, look, everyone has bad days, but when you do get in and it's in your favour, really make it count. Yeah, yeah. Were you were you a superstitious player? Um, I wouldn't say particularly. I, I, um, I had a very odd habit later on in my career where I would um, 
the piece of chewing gum that I started my innings um, with, if I was not out overnight, I used to take it out and put it on the end of my bat handle and then resume the next day, <laughs> uh, which is not a particularly nice thing to think about. But, um, yeah. So I guess that was that was about as superstitious as I got, really. Yeah, and did you, did, did it kind of bug you if you couldn't do that? I mean, was it that sort of superstition where it would get into your head if it, if you'd forgotten about it? Yeah, I guess um, it was a silly little thing that I, I got into the habit of doing, but of course it, it made that absolutely no difference. And actually, towards the end of the career, I made a point of not doing it. So right, um, right, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but I, I guess players, you know, players have these little things that you know. Steve Waugh used to have his red hanky that he used to put in his, you yeah. know, in his pocket, and you know, uh, listen, you know, whatever works. You know, lots, lots of other players. I mean, Jonathan Trott, you know, he used to almost dig a trench when he was taking his scar, <laughs> yeah. didn't he? You know, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, wh- whatever works, you know, um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's too good to get too caught up with that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, we mentioned um, um, bats in our introduction. What sort of a bat did you like? Was that important to you, that it was a very particular way? Well, bats changed, of course. I played for 25 years and, and they changed hugely. And I remember... I've still got the bat that I used in 1988 NatWest final, and it was um, a nickels power spot. But it was probably about one third of the size of of some of the bats now. Um, so they have changed hugely. I think the drying out process has slightly changed, and the bat manufacturers are managing to get kind of more volume into the bat, but still keep it relatively light. Yeah. And, and so most players will ask for, you know, the the, the wood. That, that looks like it's quite big and chunky and you can get the edges quite big, but it still picks up quite light so they can play all the shots with it. But did, were you kind of uh, uh, keen on a very particular weight or shape? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 my most, mostly through my career, I used around about a two, two pound, nine ounce bat. Um, and I always felt that, you know, that that would have enough power in it if you like that you know if I wanted to try and hit the ball over the ropes that I could do that but it was light enough for me to play the cut and the pull if I if I wanted to against quick bowlers so you know I wanted a bat that I could um I could play all the shots with um I think I think something sometimes people I, I got very particular actually about the handle and the shape of the handle and um, you know different different uh, manufacturers you know sort of came to make different shapes of handle and I I got quite um particular about the bottom of the handle so for my bottom hand my right hand i wanted it a bit oval um and and then the, and then the top hand would be um sort of a, a little bit thicker so you know i because I, I i felt like i i learned the game in an age where your top hand you were taught really that your top hand uh held the, the back t- quite tight and and sort of um just you know kept the bat on line and controlled controlled the bat face and and your right hand only came in if you were trying to hit the ball more with more power so like you know the sweep or the cut and the pull um but really when driving and playing straight bat shots my left hand was more in control and therefore i wanted the grip slightly thicker on the top hand the 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 test match hundreds that you made were both against uh, very high quality attacks did did they feel different to the other hundreds that you got they were different in intensity. Um, you, you, you take so much concentration in a test match because, um, you know, there's there's uh, obviously the quality of the bowling, uh, which is relentless, you know, and against those quality of attacks, you know, you know that 
one mistake, obviously, and you're gone. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, it take, so it takes so much concentration um, to face that standard of bowling. Um, uh, and, of course, everything that goes with Test Match Cricket, with the big crowds, you know, the TV, um, you know, the one in Barbados was a particularly hot day. Um, so they cope with the heat as well. Um, so, you know, there's lots lots to go with it. And I think just the, 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 the pressure and intensity of playing for England and, you know, in a, in a test match, you know, so those, those two uh, hundreds would stand out in terms of intensity. Yeah, yeah. And and this, you, you mentioned your, your, your first hundred at Headingley. There was this uh, great kind of a lovely symmetrical close in that you made your hundredth hundred there as well. Um, and And... I mentioned in the introduction, Grace being notably nervous as he approached the mark. What was it like for you? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it, the wicket. Uh, I remember playing up at Headingley there. I think it was my eleventh innings, so it was my eleventh innings. Um, and, you know, before I'd made the ninety ninth, and then afterwards, I had a, it was my eleventh innings. So, um, but that had taken that was over a period of three months because we'd had yeah you know, we'd had a break for twenty twenty. Uh, we'd had four or five weeks of T20, and then I got food poisoning, so I missed a four-day game. So finally, we got to Headingley, and the pitch was pretty good and remained good. And in the second innings, I managed to get there. I think it was one of those occasions where I got to 30, and I thought, look, you know what? The wicket's still good. If I get, if I concentrate well, um, I felt like I, you know, could progress on to three figures. Um, I got into the 90s, and. Uh, uh, I, I I obviously was aware of what was happening and, and um, the left arm spinner bowled a very good over. He bowled five good balls. And thankfully, he dropped one slightly short um, last ball of the over, which I managed to get away between the, between the covers. Um, so, yes, there were, there were nerves because you realise the enormity of it. I mean... To, to, to get a hundred as we were saying you know it, it just take it you know it takes a long time it takes a lot of concentration and so um you don't want to miss the opportunity you know if you get up into the 80s and 90s you know you you may not get there again for a while so you know you really wanted to make the most of the opportunity yeah yeah i mean i mentioned that only 25 players have ever done it and it looks like very much like you might be the last given the way the structure of the game has changed um i mean how how do you reflect on the, on the fact that you did get there well I, I of course i have a lot of pride uh, you know it's a very, it's a very nice thing to reflect on i think it's a testament to my longevity i was very lucky to stay pretty much injury free in my career um, as you say, I played in an era, um, particularly at the start, when we, we had quite a few first-class fixtures in the summer. Of course, that has, over the years, declined in, in terms of the number of matches and therefore the number of innings in first-class cricket. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, it's a testament to longevity and also retaining a love of the game. And that's not always easy as a professional player because... However, well you, you know, if you play well, it may have, you know, affects your pay packet. And if you don't play well, um, you know, so um, you know, people have mortgages and, and things like that, and so that brings with it an added pressure. And and you don't realise that until you turn professional, and then you know, it, it can be off-putting for some people. As a final question, you you, you mentioned 
playing professionally, but I know you're you're not one of those guys who the minute you you lay down your bat as a professional player, you stopped playing. You still get out there and, and certainly a while ago we're, we're playing uh, games for the PCA and so on. Is it something that you still love just for the pure sake of it? Um, it it's gradually diminishing. Uh, <laughs> right. I, um, no, it, I mean I had uh, I finished at the age of forty two and. Subsequent seasons, you know, I did play for Stanmore um, in my uh, in the Middlesex League. Um, so I played probably three or four games a season for Stanmore, um, which you know. What did the opposition say when you turned up? Were they? <laughs> well, they were, you know, they were okay. I mean, I, I think um, I, I played golf with the captain, see, so he wrote he wrote me in for a few games. Um, and you're right, the PCA Masters is something that I really enjoy because we we meet up with old teammates and of course we we all miss uh, you know the banter and so those are nice occasions to go to different clubs around the UK so you know play with people like Devin Malcolm Alex Tudor Phil DeFreitas Matthew Hoggard you know Simon Jones is I could go on and on so that, that's always a those are fun occasions but in terms of the batting I have to confess you know if you if you don't practice uh, <laughs> inevitably uh, you you start you start to struggle and um you know, my eyesight's not what it used to be. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure how long that's going to continue. Well, Mark, it comes to us all, but thank you very much. That was fantastic. Cheers. Thank you. For more than a century, the cricket bat remained essentially unchanged. It took a South African golf club engineer called Arthur Garner to split the atom and invent something new. He and his business partner, Barry Wheeler, approached the batmaker Gray Nichols with an idea based on the hollowed out backs of golf clubs that have made the experience of hitting iron shots much more forgiving for the Sunday hacker. Via John Newbury, Swan Richards and the Chapel Brothers, that idea became the GN100, known universally as the scoop, a bat that worked not just in the hand, but in the imagination. Others followed, the Stuart Surridge Jumbo, the Slazenger V8, the Duncan Fernley Magnum and more, bats that became objects of fetish that exploited the relationship between batter and bat. It was the start of a great leap forwards that has resulted in the bats of today with deep bows and sweeping edges, broad blades and willow pushed as far as it can go in pursuit of power and performance. Michael Blatherwick formed B3 Cricket with his partners Russell Evans and Dr David Bacon in 2012 with the idea of giving the club player the chance to own a bat shaped for their game. And the Nottingham-based company has become one of a number of bespoke makers fulfilling that urge to own something special. Their stickers have become a familiar sight across the grounds of England. And I'm pleased to say that Michael joins us now. Michael, I wonder if you remember your own first cricket bat. I, I do, yes, John. Um a Slazenger. Um, I, I was looking at it through the window of the the, the, the sports shop in Nottingham, Redmayne and Todd's, uh, for several weeks, and then eventually saved up enough uh, pocket money and, and, and stuff to um, go and buy it. And what do you think it is? I mean, and obviously that relationship develops from there, doesn't it? What do you think it is that attracts people to a bat, and why why have they become these kind of objects that? of desire as well as functionality? Oh, I think it's that, um, that boy, boy or dream that you can um, get better, score that century, win that match. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's the, um, 
it's the vehicle, isn't it? It's 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 the bit that you can touch and feel, and um, they're just um, they're just brilliant things, cricket bats. Yeah. <laughs> they are brilliant things. You're right. As an object itself, it's it's quite a simple one to make. Is that fair to say? Compared to sort of other pieces of carpentry, a cabinet maker or something. Yeah, it's not akin to what they've just put on Mars, but you know there, there, there is a certain <laughs> set of skills and processes that you need to know right from wrong on. Um, you know, there's a lot of skill and pride goes into making uh, making a cricket bat. I remember watching an old a sort of a vintage film I saw fairly recently of a uh, a maker in the fifties, and they was you know a. a a skilled bat maker then was probably producing 200 bats a day, they thought, because uh, the object itself was, you know, it was shaped very simply. They were all the same, essentially. Whereas now, obviously, a lot more work goes into them and into the finishing of them and so on. We, we were quite revolutionary. So the two guys who, who, who set up B3, David and Russell, um, came from Gunnar Moore. Um, Russell yeah. had been there for 20-odd years, and he, he was instrumental in... Um, bringing in CNC machinery to make the cricket bats, essentially do the carving bit. Um, but the carving bit was taking, you know, in excess of, of an hour for each bat. And then you've got the sanding, the finishing, the fitting of the handle, the binding. Um, so, so making 200 bats in a day per craftsman, I, I, I can't see that. I think, sorry, I think that was per, per, I think that was per the factory, not the, not, not oh, okay. per craftsman. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, a lot, a lot of firms at the time were sending uh, Willow to India and Pakistan because the labor was obviously cheaper and then bringing it back to the UK to be finished. Um, and, and good and more wanted to um, not do that. So, so Russell and David uh, were part of this, uh, this revolution, if you like, bringing in the machinery to do the, the carving. And that was the idea behind B3 Cricket. The, the, um, we, we wanted to slow that whole process down uh, and rather than do it on a commercial scale, do it on a, an individual scale so that the, the recreational cricketer, in effect, would get the same service that, that was previously only afforded to uh, probably the professional cricketers. Um, and and, and you, you made reference to it earlier. I mean, custom golf clubs have, have been around for decades. So why not cricket bats? And, and that, that was the concept out of which B3 was born, really. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose really, um, as you've alluded to, the, one of the primary skills is in the judgment of the willow itself. I wonder if you talk a little bit about where the willow comes from and how you begin to look at it when it arrives. Yeah, sure. I mean, come back to this analogy of a golf club, that the, the, the difference is that metal is uniform and yeah. predictable, whereas every, every piece of willow is unique. Um, and, and strangely, people have tried to find um, a type of timber um, that's similar to English willow. I think there's over 400 different strains of of, of willow, it salix, I think is the Latin, but only one suits um, cricket bats in terms of the weight, the performance, the resilience. We actually worked um, under a strict NDA about five years ago for a, a, a major sports brand who searched the Amazonian rainforests for something that they thought might do the job because wow. English willow is is 
um, sought after and, and, and hard to get sometimes in, in, in the right quality and quantity. Um, and and we, we were engaged to make some um, prototypes for them. And, 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 you know, they tried everything and spent a lot of money on it, but, but couldn't find anything. And, and other people have tried to grow the same strain of English willow in other countries, in different climates, in different soils. And, and again, not had um, the success that they, they were hoping for. So English willow is, is, is unique. The, the best growers um, are established in this country. Um, I suppose they're established because it takes 15 years for your, um, your, your seedlings to grow. In, in, into a tree big enough to make some cricket bats. So it's not something you can get into easily. Uh, we, we get all of our willow from a company called JS Wright, so probably the, the best known um, grower of English willow in, in, in the country based in Essex. Um, and it's graded, it's graded on um, the, the aesthetic attributes really. So if you want a nice, a tree will throw out so many clefts as, as we call them so we, we chop it down from a tree in, into um, lengths of about a meter which is called a round and then it's split into clefts and then machined into a, a uniform um, size before going into the, the kiln drying process and and when you process those clefts you find some that have got knots in them and aren't so good and you get others that are absolutely stunning beautifully straight grained pieces of willow. So it's grained based on those aesthetic attributes. Um, and that determines the price of the cleft and therefore the price of the bat ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And the the judgment of those clefts, the bat maker's judgment of what the what sort of a bat the cleft is going to produce is quite key, isn't it, at this, this early stage? Yeah, there's, uh, so you can look at... Um, you can look at a bat and it, it can be very pleasing to the eye. As I say, tight grains, um, very straight, very clean. But actually, we're, uh, we've all done it. You've had a bat that looks beautiful, but you may as well play with a barn door. Um, you've, had, you've, had, you've had ugly bats um, that uh, have been crackers. Uh, the, 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 it's, there's no precision, to be honest. All, all you can do is try and be consistent as a bat maker. And that's what we do. And, and, and the CNC technology allows us to be very precise on the, the shape and the balance um, and, and the weight of, of the bat. Um, another key process is the pressing. So having somebody who knows how to get the most of that, that magic ingredient that everybody's looking for, ping, um, is, is a skill and, and you know, arguably an art form. Um, so, you know, the good bat makers uh, press very well and make their shapes consistent so that they're, they're well balanced and they pick up nicely. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting you, make, you mentioned pressing and shape because I guess those are the two key advances really maybe since the turn of the century and the revolution in bats that was always kind of misnomered on the on the television as being these big bats they use these days when in actual fact the volume of the bat was bigger but the weight wasn't and it was shaped differently so when when did that sort of process start do you think and how does a bat make a you know what what are the the qualities now that you need that sell in the market sort of thick edges or 
broad looking blades. What are they, what are people after at the moment? Um, they're looking for that missing ingredient, uh, which gives them an excuse not to blame the technique, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. But when we started B3 in 2012, um, the, the, there were no regulations on the size of vats that only came in recently mm. in 2016. Um, and that, that was to redress this um, supposed imbalance between bat and ball. The, the bats of, of, say, even 20, 30 years ago, when I was a kid and, and buying my first bats, they, they had more moisture in them. So they, they might be dry to 15 or 16%. So therefore, you know, a two pound, 10 ounce bat was, was actually smaller in, in volume because it was a... A, a heavier or, or higher density material. Um, they started to dry lower and lower over, over the next couple of decades um, to the modern day. And, and still, you know, bat makers will argue about what is the, the optimum um, um, moisture content. JS writes dry theirs down to about 10 or 11%. Some bat makers will, will, will do it lower to get more volume in the bat um, but others might argue that that makes them brittle and, and more subject to breaking um, which is fine if you're a professional cricketer who, who's got a dozen in his bag and, and you know you get them for free but if you're a, a, an amateur cricketer um, you, you need to get the balance right you need, you need something that's going to give you uh, performance and longevity as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about the sort of fashion for shapes where, you know, the edges are now shaped in a certain way so you get a big swell in the middle of the bat and the spines are done a certain way? Is that just fashion or is that performance driven? A bit of both. I would say that the, the, the recreational market is very much driven by what the pros are using. People yeah. have tried um, you know, always looking for, for you know, d different ways of um, improving performance of, of, of the bat and their game. But there's only so much you can do. You know, a, a bat is a bat and there's only, you know, there's only so much you can do. When we started B3, because, again, there, there, were, no, um, there were no restrictions on the size of a bat, people wanted huge spines and edges um, and, and that's when concaving really came into its own. So literally mm -hmm. scooping out the back of the bat, like the old GN that you referred to in, in your introduction. Um, so, you know, you, you, you rob in Peter to pay Paul, basically. You, you're, moving, you're moving volume around um, and reproportioning re it. Um, now it, it's changed. It's, it's turned full circle a little bit because you've got the, the restriction on the size, I think it's 40 mil um, on the edge and, and 66 mil on the spine. Uh, and, and the umpires carry gauges in, in the professional game anyway. Uh, people are starting to look for fuller blades so that they're going back to mm. something a little bit more traditional. Right. And, and right. then people will will look at you know where the middle goes and, and whether they want a, a, a high, medium or low pickup on the bat. Very much depends upon how strong they are, the style of play, type of wickets they play on and the bowlers they're facing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose the other great area that, that you need to pay attention to, and in many ways it's the most difficult, is in the stickering and the naming and the marketing of bats. 
which has come such a long way. And I remember a bat maker saying to me a long time ago, if you don't get the stickers right, it doesn't matter what the bat's like. And I wonder how true you think that is and how much importance you you, you press on, put on your, you know, your marketing, your logo, your stickers and so on. Uh, we were we were quite lucky actually because a friend of ours came up with the name B3 because we said we've got three ways people can buy the bats off us. We've got the series range, which is are our stock shapes, which we make um, um, for the showroom and, and and sell readily at any time. Then if somebody can't find something within those shapes, which are pretty much the proven best selling six. Um, of, of the current time then they can go for the custom configurator and that is literally you can go on the website um, and you can mess around with your your edge your toe your your your, um, your spine and, and all the attributes of the bat and, and, and build a, a bat and, and save it like when you're configuring a new car on, on a kosh website um, and, and send the pdf to yourself and then ultimately we've got our bespoke service which is you sit down with our, our CAD designer and literally map the bat out from um, you know an old an old favourite or a picture, so we can do that. It, we 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 bat map if you like. So there were three ways in which we could uh, meet the customer's demands. So that became B three, and then you know we met a graphic designer and he took that and. We were very, you know, very pleased with, with the, the logo we came up with. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you're not going to buy a nice shiny new car and expect the paintwork to be dodgy. You want nice stickers, don't you? I mean, I'm using more analogies than Boris Johnson and his team. I'm sorry. <laughs> we can have a tunnel in a bit. <laughs> but that, but it is weirdly important, isn't it, to get the name of the bat right? I mean, people respond differently to something called a an Excalibur to something called an Axe to something called a, you know, a, an XTFP3 or something. They're all triggering different emotions and different thoughts in us in what the bat itself is going to be. Yeah, they do. But um, there's only so many names you can use. <laughs> and ones yeah. that are synonymous with cricket or cricket bats seem to have gone. You know, the, the, the times we'll say, right, what we're going to call the series range next year, and we'll say, I know the 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 so and so. I won't use any real names. Yeah. Um, but um, no, no, they did that. They did that in 1986. Oh, okay. Then, back to the drawing board. Um, in fact, we've just done a new range of uh, of bats for a um, a big retail store in in America, and and crickets on 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 a big growth curve upwards in America at the moment. And um, they came up with two names, the Power, P-O-W-A, and that was based on a, um, a shape very similar to what Sachin Tendulkar used, which was a very sort of low middle bat. Um, and, and another one, the Dracon, and I've never watched Game of Thrones, but apparently it's from that. So, um, yeah, so I was quite, quite pleased with those names, and, and, and they're buzzing about it in America. But, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the traditionalists um, in the UK might not actually think they're very good names. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I always thought it was probably one of my dream jobs would just be sit around thinking up names for new bats. 
One other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and it sort of goes against the relationship between player and bat. I remember seeing a series of blanks at one bat maker uh, for handles, for professional players' handles. And it was almost like you could see the psychology of the player by the kind of handle they had. Some of them, you know, it's like golf golfers with putters. Some of them use a long putter because their putting's going to work. They had like bits of square bits on the bottom of the handle and a thin bit at the top. And a, and it was obvious the kind of the real psyche and the psychology of the player was in the kind of handle that they like, this connection between them and the bat. Is something is that something that you, you find they play particular attention to as the players get better and bat for longer? Some, some do, some, some don't. Um, you'll get some customers come in and, and they'll, um, they'll, they'll pick a bat up. And as long as it's in a range of, of weights and feel, anything will do. Others are, <laughs> are, are fussy to the nth degree. You know, so I've dealt with some of the top, top professionals. And um, you know, some can spot a difference on a bat from 22 yards away, a millimetre. Yeah? Yeah. Others aren't that bothered. You know, we, 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 um, we did some alterations to a bat for Steve Smith a couple of years ago when the Ashes were on. And, and, and you know, he'd be about an 8 out of 10 on the, 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 the fussyometer. Right, um, right. Something like Jonathan Trott will be a 12. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, and you can see it in the way they back, can't you? The way they are at the crease and so on. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and um, coming back to the handle, Gavin, our, our, our production director, keeps um, uh, drawings in his workbench for all our pros, and 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 you know they they, they literally go down um, to to the millimeter. We'll have some that you know want um, extreme ovals, some that want round, thin, um, standard, thick. Um, some people want the handle made thick and then have a double bind on it with one grip. Some people want um, a single grip with um, a triple bind. We, we we cater for that, and we we cater for that, but not just for the pro players, but for our our, our, our regular customers as well. As a, as a final question, what's the most satisfying part of the job? Um, seeing um, seeing customers come back, and and you know we we we're, as a brand, um, we just try and engage in cricket. So, yeah, you know, for for me, it's all about sort of continuing to grow and develop cricket. What just want to see it survive and thrive. So, um, and, and anything to do with cricket and people. Um, you know, engaging in it and, and becoming passionate about it is, is what it's all about. Superb, Michael, thank you very much. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. Our connection with the willow that has found its way into our hands can be complex. I often think of the story of David Rock, a player good enough to get into the Hampshire side of the late 1970s and make two first-class hundreds. I watched him get one of those at Basingstoke after Clive Rice dismissed both Gordon Greenwich and Barry Richards early. He appeared in 37 first-class games before retiring aged just 23. 
He played for Portsmouth in the Southern League for a few seasons until, apparently out of the blue, his captain gave him a lift home one day. And as he got out of the car, Rock told his skipper to keep his kit and he never played again. Why Mm. cricket does that to people is perhaps the game's central mystery. It's played in the mind as much as in the middle. Gideon Haley needs little introduction to followers of the game. He's its preeminent writer, and although his work covers areas as diverse, or maybe not, as business and crime, it's cricket that brings him back again and again. Among the books he's written is Many a Slip, his diary of a season with his club South Yarra in Melbourne. So he's perhaps the perfect man to help us explore this territory. Gideon, have you had many David Rock moments, or do you think that's still to come for you? I think it was really rather sad that when you mentioned the man, the name David Rock, I knew exactly who you meant. <laughs> uh, late 70s player for Hampshire, overshadowed by Richards at Greenwich, made a couple of first-class hundreds, um, yeah, and and disappeared to the sound of his own feet. I didn't know that last part of his uh, of his story, but uh, but it sounds like a like a common one. Look, I don't think I've ever been quite good enough to uh, to decide to, to give it away. Uh, you know, hope always springs eternal with uh, with with my cricket. Um, I'm still at the point where I haven't got to the got the got to the stage of it being, uh, you know, the long slow stumble down. Uh, I'm still out there every weekend, hoping for the best, and you know, sort of if and if I can't succeed personally, I've found lots of other incidental satisfactions along the way. Didn't get any runs at the weekend, got a bad decision. Uh, but <laughs> they always are coped, coped with it manfully and uh, watched a couple of other blokes get 50s who I was very glad for. And we had a good win. We had a club function in the um in the rooms that night. We had Dirk Nannis as a as a guest speaker. We had a successful silent auction, we made a few thousand dollars for the club. And those kind of satisfactions I find every bit as pleasing as as uh, individual accomplishment these days. The idea of keeping the lights on and, and keeping the community alive at, uh, at my club, where I've been playing for now almost 28 years. Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, that brings to mind a couple of, well, a little more than a couple of years ago now, uh, as part of a piece we did some sports psychology. And part of that was about, giving yourself permission to take the game seriously. Hmm. And uh, I found that quite interesting, even at an amateur level, that um, actually it was okay. Uh, I know you were saying, oh, you're not sure you were quite good enough to, uh, to you know, go through those emotions of, of being piqued by failure or whatever. But it, it's interesting that, uh, do, you, do you give yourself that permission? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do everything. I, I'm a very grave critic. You know, I'm not a I'm not a light-hearted one by by any Good. means. I find other consolations, but that doesn't mean that I regard it as, as trivial by any means. And I guess I have had moments where uh, I've wondered why I'm putting myself through this. It's because it is such a time-consuming game. You do have to give so much of yourself and your and your week to to cricket in order to do it. Even even to give yourself even half a chance of of, of succeeding. I did once. Um, I did retire. Uh, psychologically, about halfway through a final, about ten years ago, where um, where uh, it was it was a grand final. I think I'd played in about six losing grand finals by this stage, and I really thought, you know, it's it's about time I won one. And uh, we got sent in on a wet pitch, and I got out in the first over, uh, hopelessly 
stumblingly, incompetently LBW. And I went back to the dressing room and I thought, really, oh, I can't do this again. This is absurd. Uh, I'm feeling so bad at the moment that uh, that really I just can't put myself through that. I will announce my retirement at the end of this game. <laughs> it was a two-day game, but I managed to get some wickets in the first innings and I got some runs in the second innings. And we and, it, and the game ended up um, in a terrific finish the, the next day. And, of course, all thought of that was, was banished. And I was back for the following season. It gave me just enough just enough to uh, to keep going it's a, it's a cruel mistress in uh, in in that way it always gives you a kind of a the occasional glimpse of the possible it does and i suppose um what it also gives you i've always found is although our experiences as sort of amateur players aren't particularly akin to those of professional players it always gives you that opportunity to experience perhaps the emotions that they experience we can all face bowling that's slightly too fast for us whether that's a you know, 75 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour, the, the physical feelings are probably the same. Mm. And again, those kind of, you know, the mental difficulties of, of failing over and over again, of, you know, the game not giving you what you want it to give you. I think those are common experiences, aren't they? Do you think that the fact that you play has informed the way that you write? Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I, I understand for one thing, you know, the, the very fine line that separates success from failure. Uh, I understand um, the value of runs made in pressure situations versus the value of runs that are, that are made um, with uh, with relative freedom. Uh, I understand the the press of of regular failure. Um, I understand that creeping sense of desperation that can that can come as you string together a a series of, uh, of of thin scores. Fun enough, but today I um uh, I've interviewed Curtis Patterson from New South Wales a few years ago and really liked him. Thought he was a terrific young bloke and gone got a great deal of satisfaction from seeing him play Test cricket. Of course, he made a century and has not played another Test match since. Got injured a couple of seasons ago. Missed a lot of cricket. Has come back into the New South Wales side. Hasn't made too many runs. Went missing in the BBL. I think he managed to play one game for the Scorchers. Failed in the in the game coming back into the second half of the Sheffield Shield. And yesterday he got he got eighty odd not out. And I sent him a text overnight saying, "I'm really pleased for you. I hope you make it into a into a big one today." He managed to get a hundred. He got his tenth first class hundred and got out for a hundred and two. So he replied. He was a bit disappointed, but uh, but I did. I've been. Because I follow his his career quite closely, and I I, I feel a, a sort of a tiny a tiny share of it as a result of our having met. Uh, I was wrapped for him today, really pleased for him. Um, he's a terrific young lad, and I and I hope that he um, that this is the first of a of a of a string of scores that gets him back into test calculations. Yeah, I suppose it's that. Um, I mean, we could, the one thing an amateur can never experience is that fact, that point of having your career on the line, as mm. well as your hopes and dreams on the line. Um, but that kind of uh, accrual of scar tissue, a kind of whinnying away of of desire and, um, you know, uh, want to do well, um, that's something everyone's familiar with, isn't it? It's something that the game kind of does almost uniquely and that it presents failure as really its most often occurring state in many ways oh well it's um you know you'll fail more often than you'll succeed in yeah. this game i don't think there's any game that, that's quite like that and i don't think there's any game that exposes uh failure um 
in such a cruel and unsparing and often unfair fashion because nothing about um, the, the legend court X bolt Y for naught tells you exactly how that transpired. Uh, nothing will tell you about um, the uh, the circumstances under which it was acquired. Uh, it's It gives you instant feedback, not just in how well you're doing, but how well you're doing relative to everybody else. So there's the test that comes from failing yourself and watching others succeed. Um, how much satisfaction you can you can derive from that? I guess you know there's uh, there's a certain truth to uh, to, to is it Groucho Marx's axiom that no man is ever completely unhappy about the failure of his best friend. <laughs> you know, misery loves company in a, in a dressing room. You're always yeah. hoping that if you're, you're not the only one that fails at uh, at the at the weekend, uh, that there's a, there, there's a sort of sense of mutual and, and shared chagrin. There's enough chagrin to go to go around. Uh, at the same time, you know, failure in team success is an interesting kind of character test. Mm. Um, it's uh, I know that the worst the worst periods of my career, or the, the the low points, have been when my team has been getting beaten consistently. I, uh, I had a I had a season one year where I didn't win a single game. You know, I played sixteen games and lost every single one of them. I can't actually remember my own performances in those games, but I do remember how dismal it felt to get to the end of that season and realise that you know I hadn't managed to get on the score. Uh, our, our entire team hadn't managed to get on the on the scoreboard that year. Uh, there was a you know there was a sense of sort of mutual masochism in the end, you know, as we got beaten by ever ever more sizable margins uh, each week. But then there was also the truism that you know the um, the owl of Minerva flies at midnight because the following season I actually won my only flag and that gave me that's probably the best experience I've had in the course of my career is winning a flag with this particular group of cricketers with many of whom I'm still playing and and actually I played with at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the game. I mean, it it very quickly points out to you that although it's a team sport, you're very much alone, um, hmm. especially when you're batting, and you kind of develop. And this is partly what we're touching on in the course of this podcast: a strange and complex relationship with your bat, which is basically the only thing hmm. you've got apart from your protective gear. Are you a kind of uh, a batty? type batsman if you if you know what that question means are you obsessed with your blade um yeah i i guess i must be because i've still got them all <laughs> from from the age of nine i've still got the very first bat i owned and the last and the most recent bat that i owned i've actually got them in a rack upstairs it's right. bizarre and pathetic but what can you do <laughs> When a bat reaches the end of its natural life, you can't throw it away, can you? It's for for you know, however it's treated you, it's done its best within its within its limits to make you look as good as possible. How can you dispose of such a loyal servant? So yes, I've got them all upstairs, apart from those few that kind of just disintegrated in my hand, and there was no point in uh, in keeping them. But uh, but everyone's got a story. Everyone's got an origin. Uh, everyone's associated with satisfactions and with uh, and with uh, setbacks, and I'm glad to say that the bat that I'm using at the moment is fantastic. It is. It seems to me that, as you know yourself, John, bats have been getting better and better. And the most recent one I have is the most uh, is the 
ultimate in the evolutionary journey of of bat technology. It's excellent. Yeah, uh, it almost say, does it all for you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it does it all for you, but I'm in exactly the same position in that the bat I've got at the moment is I'm increasingly thinking the best bat I've ever picked up. And I, you're right, it is the, the technology, which is partly what we've been talking about with bat makers and so on, in that they're now able to push the willow itself in new ways. You know, they've kind of hit on this magic formula of pressing and uh, and drying that essentially creates an experience like, as you say, we probably weren't having 20 years ago. No, no. I mean, I remember the first professional bat that I ever used, which is now about 10 years ago. Um, Ed Cowan gave me one of his cast-offs and I took it into a into a game and I remember I pushed a ball into the covers and to my surprise it went through the covers and <laughs> four. And I thought, hmm, that doesn't happen regularly where I'm concerned. I must make it look as though I do it all the time, though. That's an important part of the um, of the uh, the performative part of, of batsmanship. And I got a 50 that day and I really did think as though Boy, oh boy, I did not realise just what a difference a very good bat can make. Uh, that was kind of revelatory to me. And I had two or three of his subsequently, and I've loved using them. This particular one that I'm using at the moment is given to me by a local bat maker called TNF. Uh, and he heard me on the radio um, earlier this season complaining that I couldn't find a grip. It was very difficult to find grips in uh, in uh, in Melbourne sports stores, and I needed a new grip for my bat. And he actually rang me up and he said, "Well, how would you like a new bat?" And I thought, "Jeez, yeah, all right, yeah, I'm I'm up I'm up for that." And it's an absolute ripper. So I uh, I it, it's actually the batch that Ashton Agar used in his um, Test debut innings in in 2013. That that oh, same yeah, okay. yeah. and it's um, T and F tails never fails and. Uh, uh, I can I can thoroughly recommend them. They make you look much better than you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. You, but bats have changed. I'm sure if you went back to your rack and looked through it, the evolving sort of shape, you know, the various concepts and ideas that people have gone through. But essentially, it's this psychological ploy of you looking down when you're when you're in your stance and the bat looking broad and with a you know a big edge and it but it feeling still light in your hand and it's playing on you psychologically all the time with its shape and its feel i wonder if you were kind of aware of that change yeah for sure i mean the game is um is all about making you feel good isn't it uh, yeah. making you feel as though you can trust every part of your every everything that's within your control um you can trust and is and is being optimized the other thing of course that's changed is gear generally um pads are so much lighter um than they were when when we started mm. uh, they were so heavy they were like being you know manacled to uh, to, <laughs> to, to um to a ball and chain and uh, and gloves are better you know I, the the particular gloves that i've got at the moment just feel fantastic they're, they're now about three or four years old and they've almost gone through in the palms but they've reached that lovely stage where they're um that you they're providing minimal kind of tactile interference between 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 you and the bat handle so i'm very loath to uh, to dispose of them i'm still using 20 year old spikes right. which uh, are <laughs> which have disintegrated about three times this season and are now about 90% tape and about 10% shoe but they do feel incredibly comfortable so i'm loath to dispose of them certainly not this season yeah i mean you can really appreciate more and more i think as you as you play more and get older 
someone like when you sort of looked at, I'm mean, just pulling a name out of the air, Jack Russell at the end of his career, and he's wearing a hat that is more sort of tape than hat. And he's got a bat that looks like he's just dug a grave with it, you know. But again, it comes back to this psychology, doesn't it? You're looking for something to cling on to when you're on your own out there. And it's fulfilling some sort of need, this, you know, constant taping up of your shoes or your, you know, oh, my my gloves, they're just so tactile at the moment. I can't, you know, I can't possibly let them go. It's, you know, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Well, we're, we're terribly, terribly ritualistic, aren't we? Where uh, yeah. kit is concerned generally. I mean, I this this goes down to the clothing in, in my case. I've got a particular shirt that I wear <laughs> every weekend. Uh, when I when I I broke the Yarra's record for for games played some years ago, and um, they actually gave me a, a shirt with my name on it, but I've never I've never worn it because yeah. it just seems ridiculous to yeah. wear a shirt with your name on it. So I wear a shirt that is completely nameless that I got runs in probably about six or seven years ago, and uh, you know I haven't injured myself or uh, in, had some sort of catastrophic accident in the shirt, so that thereby qualifies as a lucky shirt. And I actually wear the uh, the author's 11 pants that I think I got when I played with you for the first <laughs> yeah. time, John. They're very comfortable pants, so I've continued, yeah. continued wearing them. Uh, that actually is quite odd because we've actually got club kit. You know, we've got we've got monogrammed kit at the Yarras that, uh, that, generally speaking, players prefer to play, but I still stick to this particular ensemble every week. I guess because you don't have to think about it. And if I think too much about my gear, then maybe I'll get distracted by um by, by that. If I can take that for granted, if I can eliminate those externalities and minimise those distractions, maybe I'm sort of thinking psychologically. I can concentrate on what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that you. Anyway, you've just you made me think about it now. <laughs> stop, stop thinking about it because it's it's gonna it'll crucify you the next time you're at the crease. I'd hate to think that next time you're batting, you're gonna this will suddenly pop into your head, I, which it it does, doesn't it? These these intrusive thoughts happen. It's a terrible thing. But you could can you see? I mean, uh, yeah, it was interesting talking to the bat maker we spoke to about uh, the fussiness of players he makes for, and inevitably the fussiest were the ones that you could tell were. So he, he singled out Jonathan Trott, you know, and you can tell from Trott's sort of pre-ball ritual what he's going through. Mm. The same with Steve Smith. It seems to have become more externalised as society has probably become a bit more kind of touchy-feely. You know, you, you think of, think back to my youth, Tom Graveney wasn't, yeah, not that I ever saw Tom Graveney, I don't imagine he wasn't, pulling a Jonathan Trot, you know, um, it just seems that, that uh, it, it, this, this kind of manifestation of, of um, the psychology of batting is becoming more and more apparent at the crease. Yeah. Chris Rogers was telling me an interesting story uh, a couple of years ago that he worked with young Josh Philippi at the, um, at the national cricket center here. And Philippi was apparently um getting 20 or 30 and managing to get out each time. And Rogers reasoned after a while that, that the Philippi's problem was that he was concentrating a hundred percent all the time yeah. and that he was using so much nervous energy to stay in that he didn't have the stamina to bat beyond that point. So he managed to train Philippi into a, 
ritual between balls where he got the chance to relax and kind of go down the gears and then raise the gears as the bowler approached uh, the next time around. I, I think the first time I became conscious of that was when I watched Chris Tavare bat. You know, Chris <laughs> Tavare had that long walk away towards square yeah. leg and that yeah. gradual perambulation back towards the centre, which I which I didn't imitate for all, but I certainly had in mind. And I certainly do now make some sort of effort to just to relax after each ball and to have a little kind of preliminary step, a few little tiny um, mannerisms or, or tricks that I undertake before I, before I bend over the bat, which is not something, of course, that ever occurred to me when I started playing the game. I guess it's come about because it's worked on a few occasions. It's made me feel better. It's made me feel less tired. Um, and, of course, is it... Uh, you, you mentioned before that I that the relationship between my writing and my playing, I do actually kind of s- uh, subtly kind of experiment in 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 different respects in my batting in order to understand how it can affect you at the crease, uh, and I do kind of imagine that the experience that I have of playing my weekend game, however humble, gives me some sort of introduction to the way in which uh, you know a really good batsman thinks or feels. Oh, that's a massive concession to your writing. I'm not sure that's one I'd ever make is uh, to actually sacrifice a potential score <laughs> just to see how it felt. I'm not sure I'm at that point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wonder if I can crash one back over the bowler's head just to know how, you know, Brendan McCullum feels or something. Um, <laughs> well, but, that's never happened. I can promise yeah. you that. <laughs> but I, I, I suppose the one other area we should touch on is, is that of mar- the marketing of bats, which I find incredible incredibly interesting because it, it's a, it's about I mean although you know let, let's not just pretend and, and thank god it's not just a, a, a man's game but I imagine bats are marketed to women in completely different ways the way they're marketed to men is perhaps akin to sort of motorbikes or guitars or something the bat maker we're talking to is talking about the difficulties of thinking up a name a new name for a bat each season because yes. you need something that appeals to a certain section of the market, whether you'd use an axe or whether you'd use a, you know, a, a bazaar or whatever they come up with, you know, a bazooka or a kind of some sort of esoteric name. Have you, do you ever think about that much? Cause I find myself thinking if I could have one job, it would just be sitting down thinking up names for bats. <laughs> I know that I've, I've been down to Gray Nichols and, and discussed with them the, uh, the, the nomenclature of, of bats. And uh, I suspect that it's probably slightly overestimated. I think that what sells bats is feel is, is that, that first sensation that you get when you pick a bat up, you twiddle it in your hands, you play a few uh, shadow strokes, and somewhere in that group of bats is a bat that seems as though it was designed with, with you in mind. Um, it's to do with it's it's it it's all comes through the fingers. It's a it's a fingertip feel game, and uh, that's why in a in a cricket team everyone is picking up everyone else's bat and thinking, oh maybe this is the bat that I'd make runs with, or maybe or I really like his bat. I might borrow his bat when I uh, when <laughs> I when I go out to bat because there's there, I mean there is a kind of a some some bats are quite. You know, promiscuous in the uh, in the way in which they are uh, they, they're sort of farmed out among the uh, the members of a, of a team, and there's a, there's also an informal trade between 
batsmen and tail enders, isn't there? You know, a, a, a bat that served a batsman well that, that the batsman's looking to uh, to move on from is perfectly suitable for a tail ender, particularly if they've had the opportunity to use it during a game and made a few runs with it. Yeah, but I suppose if you say you pick up that bat and it's called something like, you know, the Uzi Cannon <laughs> 643 or something completely inappropriate for your style of game. Does would that, you know, would you have to peel that sticker off? No, I've, I'm pretty impervious to that. I've got to the age now where I think I can look past that. <laughs> but uh, but I do, the, I think the thing that's, that ha, at times in my, what I laughingly refer to as my career, has been the issue of whether I actually deserve to have a good bat. For, for years, I used a really bad bat. I actually, um, I, I didn't realise until for some years how bad a bat it was. It was a GN500, a Grey Nichols 500. Remember that double scoop? Yeah, with a, yeah, yeah. I got it when I was about 18 because it looked kind of cool, but it was no bloody good. Uh, I, I really struggled with it. And I didn't realise quite how bad it was until I broke it one day at training, um, the day before a final, um, I dug out a series of Yorkers and it broke in my hand. So I had to hurry out and get a new bat for the final. I went out and I bought a Slazenger V900 or something like that. It was a, was a V100 or a V600, I can't remember now. And the minute that I picked it up, I thought, this is such a better bat. Uh, previously, I've been writing in crayon, but this actually now feels like a <laughs> pencil or a fountain pen. It actually felt great. And I realized that but I think one of the reasons why I'd not, why I'd been unable to move on from that bad bat was that I hadn't felt as though I was entitled to a better bat. I wasn't entitled to spoil myself. I wasn't a good enough cricketer to indulge myself with decent kit. And it only wasted 10 years of my career, <laughs> but, uh, but it was an interesting lesson learned. <laughs> Uh, Gideon, that's fantastic. I, I think the perfect place to end. Thank you. Well, I think we could talk forever about batting, and some of us probably will. But our thanks go to Mark Ramprakash, to Gideon Hay and to Michael Blatherwick from B3 Bats. And if you fancy picking up a custom cricket bat of your own from B3, you can find them at B3, and that's the numeral three, b3cricket.com. Thanks to all. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www.thenightwatchman.net. The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace.